Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say the title of the show, and I'm going to go around and introduce people. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hello, and welcome to JavaScript Jabber. I'm your temporary host, AJ O'Neill. This is episode 166. We're discussing New Relic with Raythin and Bin Vintraub. Also, we have Dave. Hello. Jameson. Hello. Of course, I'm coming at you live. And we have some exciting news today. Coding House, which is a code camp located a little south of San Francisco, reached out to ask if the JavaScript Jabber panelists would judge scholarship submissions for their upcoming cohort and announce the three winners. So we've discussed it a little bit, and now Amy and I are announcing the winning 100% scholarship and the two winning 50% scholarships. So interesting enough, over the weekend, as I was reading over this stuff, and then AJ was spending some time, we... Uh, converged on Thursday, and oddly enough, my top three were almost the same as AJ's top three. So this made our decision really, really easy. All right, so there's a lot of different ways that you can rate these submissions, right? Like, because, I mean, you can look at, like, technical skill, what a person's already done, or, like, what their ambitions are. And for me, what was really important was to see that it's somebody who is going to uh, synergize with this opportunity, that they're going to produce more than just for themselves. And I saw that we had a number of candidates that were that way. So things like people already having a blog, already being in the pattern of sharing knowledge, that ranks very highly for me. People who had dug in and, you know, created something even that was ugly, but just that they were like, ah, I'm going to learn, I'm going to get in the grits of this and I'm going to learn what it is that I'm getting into. And so that 
ranked highly for me. But the biggest thing was probably just seeing what kind of impact can I envision this person making? Like, is this person going to be able to reach out and teach others and bring more women into the community in a friendly and uplifting way? Or is this person going to be able to bring a unique perspective to their team and be able to problem solve in a way that that might be different and might have new and interesting outcomes? And that's kind of what went into my thought process on this. What went into yours? So my criteria, much the same. I wanted to see people who not only had uh, just like the basics of coding with some HTML and CSS, but I wanted to see people that had already dug into some programming. So whether it was like Python or JavaScript, Ruby, didn't matter. I wanted to see people that had done a little bit with GitHub because that showed that they had some practice with the command line. I think overall, too, I was kind of just judging the submissions in general because I think the more effort that you put into the submission showed the drive and ambition you had. And as a fellow boot camper, I know that that's really what it takes to go the long haul. And then even after the boot camp, you're going to need that tenacity to keep going because it's a long uphill battle. Yeah, you're going to get discouraged and you're going to have to just like cry it out sleep it out, <laughs> and, and go full bore the next day. It's hard. My, my thing is you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because you're really going to be uncomfortable a lot. <laughs> All right. So with that little bit of background, maybe we'll move on. I'll give us a drum roll. So we have two positions for people that are going to get a 50% scholarship. So, you know, if you're in that position... One of these two people and, or even someone else is unfortunately not going to win. Remember, there's sites like GoFundMe and Indiegogo and whatnot. You can get your friends and family involved to raise the rest of the money if that's a problem for you. So with that, we have Emily Dreisbach. And I don't know if that's really how you say your name, but it is now. Woohoo! Um, I liked Emily because of her a uh, way of explaining her her thought process and problem solving and then also seeing the work that she has done in preparation for this. And do you have anything to add to that? Uh, that was the same thing, too, just that she had done a little bit of programming, and then, too, she just seemed to have a little bit of a different thought process. So I like that. All right. And then our next 50% uh, scholarship. Take it, Amy. Blake Gilmore. And I like Blake. Uh, obviously, if she's already started digging into D3, then she already has her hands full and has, I feel like, a decent trajectory to go forward. I really like that she's already out there in the community teaching. She wants to become a mentor. She's got uh, what looks like a blog with lots of articles on it. So she's definitely got some outreach. And I really thought all of those things were really great marks for someone to get this opportunity. And then our winner of the full scholarship, Berlin Sohn. <laughs> I like Berlin, obviously. Very, very cool that there is another figure skater out there. So Berlin, whenever you hear this, I want you to try to find me on Twitter or LinkedIn or something because I think it's really, really cool that there's now another figure skater out there. But besides that, so AG and I both really liked you and... 
For me, you know, coming from skating, I know the kind of passion you have to have to keep going and keep trying. You obviously put a ton of work into your submission, so that showed that you know how to work hard. And then, too, you had some technical skills already, which is going to be really important. So I have to say there was one little issue that almost tipped me the scale in the other way. I played the minigame, and it didn't believe that green was a primary color. <laughs> Now, I know R, G, and B are the primary colors. I don't know what all this yellow is about. But, uh, no, I love the little mini game in the submission. Yep. And the note that I made was all caps, awesome sauce. So I can't even remember, like, exactly what it was. I just remember after looking at the video and the, the blog post and the uh, GitHub page that, like, my impression was just awesome sauce, and I didn't make any other notes. So I'm looking back over it now to see what other things there were. But I, I liked that Berlin put up a GitHub page, obviously a little bit raw, but has character to it. And uh, I hope that you get to learn how to make it beautiful too. Yep. I'm excited for everybody. So to those of you that weren't the winners in this particular way, go be winners in other ways. Go use resources that are at your disposal to raise some money so that, that you can help pay your way. And that, uh, that I mean, obviously... There were a number of other people that had really good applications and had put work into it, and we totally respect that and hope that you continue with your passion to grow and to learn, and hopefully that you'll be able to find your way to Code House as well. Yep, definitely keep going. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us for this historic and epic event, and <laughs> now go about your days. Ben, Rathan, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Ben, go first. Sure. So my name is Ben Weintraub, although I like your pronunciation well. <laughs> that I, was from the made-up country of Scandiswedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where I hail from. Yes. Um, yes. So uh, we're both in Portland, Oregon, and we work at New Relic out here. I recently joined the browser monitoring team at New Relic, so we make a little bit of JavaScript that you can plug into your pages and record JavaScript errors and information about Ajax requests and all kinds of other stuff about how your JavaScript code is running in the browser. Before that, I was working on the Ruby agent here, uh, which was the, the original thing that New Relic did, uh, Rails application monitoring. And then before all of that, I was working at Apple um, on iOS performance stuff. So coming into this dynamic language world is a relatively new thing for me. And I'm Raythan. I'm a engineer on the Node.js agent. We are a module that you can install off of NPM and then just require us at the top of your initializing file. And uh, we spider out, wrap up everything that's cool and asynchronous, time it all, and send it back to New Relic, which is the gist of what we do. There's much more fun inside of that, though. That sounds amazing. So I have a, a really basic question. Let's say I have made my app. It does CRUD stuff. I don't know. It's, it's a shopping cart specifically for... Buying CRUD. It expired coffee grounds, yeah, crud cards. which have now become super cool again for some reason. Anyways, I have my application out there, and it doesn't have any monitoring. Like, I just check if it's up, and it's up most of the time, and that's fine. Like, why do I care about this stuff that you do? It's not super high traffic. I guess a shopping cart is a bad example, because you probably care a lot about that. But maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's something not super high traffic. It's just like, it's just an app. I don't know. Uh, and a lot of our users use New Relic at a free tier because uh, they're doing low traffic stuff and they only really need to see a day's worth of data and just alert on whether their site is up or not. And so 
really New Relic can help you do the OPSI side of monitoring where you're like trying to make sure your application is up and that things are going well. And then it can also help you do the more of the performance side of things where you're actually digging in and trying to make your application faster. So it, it caters to both crowds. The other thing I would add to that is that even though it's not the original use case for New Relic, we have a lot of features that will allow you to get pretty interesting non-performance data out of your site as well. So some of the stuff that you might use Google Analytics or a similar tool for, um, you can get out of New Relic as well. That's one of the things that the browser agent that I work on does is track um, individual event for every page view on your site. And you can record custom parameters with that event. And then you can go and use a tool called Insights that we have to filter through all of those events and slice and dice them based on the values of those parameters. So you can use it for more than just performance analysis and knowing when your site is down. You can also do some analytics type stuff with it. And for me, the answer to your question, though, is just like I find all this stuff really interesting. Like even if I don't really care that much about when my site goes down, I'm still interested in like what do my response times look like and how many database queries am I making per average on a page and things like that. That makes sense. When you describe the... uh events, how you can slice and dice data with your Insights product and stuff. This sounds a little bit to me like Mixpanel. Are they comparable? I'm not super familiar with Mixpanel's product, but I think that, yeah, some of the use cases are pretty similar. Yeah, the browser agent gets compared against Mixpanel, and it gets compared against Splunk, and it gets compared against Google Analytics and a bunch of other tools like that because you're it's gathering a lot of interesting session data and then you combine that with insights and you can start to do like funneling and all this other stuff to see like how people are moving through your site. You can get some of that same similar information off of the server side as well. So you can use insights with both server and client side stuff. And so one of our biggest efforts over the last year has been to add more types of events and better data on those events so that you could better use our insights product. So I have kind of an unrelated question about the back end of all this stuff. It seems like when you're doing kind of event monitoring, that's when you need to get into all the, the big distributed system stuff. Is that true? Like, I know lots of people implement this kind of monitoring system themselves. There's stuff like StatsD and Graphite, and there are a trillion tools that you can use to kind of roll your own stack. Can you talk a little bit about how it works on the back end for you guys? Originally, the answer to that question was very simple, and it was basically <laughs> MySQL. We have like we still use MySQL for a lot of stuff. So we have all of our time series data is stored in MySQL using a ton of. I think we have uh, I don't know how many shards, but we have many database shards sharded by account, and we dynamically generate tables and stuff like that. So that's for our oldest kind of data, which is time series data, and so that's like kind of similar to what you would get out of something like StatsD, where you have like a count, a min, a max, a total time. And then from that, you can derive a mean and you can derive a standard deviation because we keep track of the sum of squares as well. Although then you have to assume that your data is normally distributed, which most things that we're interested in are not. So yeah, that's, that's the answer for the time series data. As of now, we have a lot of other kinds of data that we collect as well. So I guess I could break that down into roughly two other categories. One is like traces. So these are events that are, I guess you can think of them as event data, but they're not as high volume as the kinds of data that Insights feeds on. So these would be things like transaction traces in the New Relic UI, which are basically like a detailed view of a single web request and all the database queries that happened during it and um, the template rendering and everything like that. 
so those are like each individual piece of data is larger. It's basically like a blob storage thing. So we're talking maybe on the order of a couple hundred K. And upwards of a meg or so in some in some of the cases with like Java Agent and whatnot. Yeah. I guess they can get dot net, I think PHP. They can get quite large because <laughs> they're they're very detailed. Um, another example of that would be uh, what we call session traces in the browser product. So this is basically a combination of it looks very much like what you get out of Chrome DevTools or something like that. So you see all the resource timing information, and then you see uh, user interaction events like, oh, there was a click here, and then the click handler ran for this long. Um, you see JavaScript errors on there. But it's it's over one particular browser session up to, I think, 10 seconds. So that trace data is stored in a variety of different ways. Like some of it's stored on S3, some of it's stored in Cassandra. That That all kind of depends on the individual um, use case and the what volume of data we're talking about because our different products we have a lot of different products and they have different requirements I guess and then the last category of data is stuff that's stored in insights which I guess is probably what you were originally asking about and so that uses a custom database backend that was our our CEO still writes code and a couple like two and a half years ago I think he went off and decided he was going to write a database. And so he did an initial implementation of that, and we now have a team of people who work on that database. And yeah, it's, I don't know how many machines it is distributed across, but it's quite large. It's colossal. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to be offensive, but is your CEO a crazy person? <laughs> In like a good way and a bad way. It just seems like so insane to me to think like, I'm going to write a database and I'm going to use it in production for my company. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like I've sat down and coded with him on, on node projects and a bunch of other stuff. Like we have our engineering offsite each year. And last year we had a few drinks and then implemented some stuff to like dump a ton of like streaming data into that database and see how it handled it and stuff like that. So we started pulling in like the stuff you can get from the Twitter public API and all this other stuff to see what we can do. We came up with some cool demos off of that. And that was just me and the CEO hanging out. And I'm like a leaf node in the graph of New Relic. So. So he is kind of crazy, but not in a bad way, I would say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good. And like I said, there's a whole team of people who now work on that. It's not like it's yeah. not like he's continuing to maintain that on his own while being the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he really writes any code on it anymore. He just gets like real bored in a board meeting and like pulls <laughs> up in his laptop. Analyzers recently. So oh, okay. So yeah, he, he does do some some stuff with it, but that's cool. So I have a couple questions about how the Node agent works. I mean, does it just hook into the HTTP stuff built into Node? We can start at the beginning a little bit there. Um, sure. So it, it, the first thing it hooks into is the require, so that it, it basically re replaces the underlying load with its own monkey-patched function. And so it can get access to every module before it actually gets handed to your application. In this way, it's able to reach in and wrap up every method that's interesting, including on the, HTTP, the core HTTP stuff, as well as in database drivers that you use and frameworks that you use as well. So it, it really spiders out and grabs all the data it can just by hooking into the require hook um, and then doing a little bit of monkey patching here and there. But yeah, we do instrument the core HTTP server, and that's the only HTTP server that we support in it. There are some that are written in C out there that people use, but they're not very common. So for the most part, everyone sticks with the core stuff. All the frameworks build on top of the core stuff as well. So Yeah, I was going to say, basically, if you're using a popular Node web framework, it's probably using the built-in HTTP stuff. Like yeah. Express or Sales or something. 
Yeah, yeah. And it actually, Sales is built on top of Express. So we only instrument Express, Happy, and Restify as far as web frameworks go. But because like Action Hero, Sales, Kraken, and a number of other ones are built on top of uh, Express, we get those ones kind of for free. They've also caused us a little bit of headache because they, they reach into Express in um, interesting ways that users don't do. But, you know, it's, it's just part of the fun of the job. Can you talk a little bit more about the application-specific stuff that you do? Like, you said you do specific things for Express. And that seems like one of the interesting differences between the, like, Rails, you are just, you have Rails and you support it. And Node has a lot wider range of things that get used, for better or for worse. Yeah. But you, you do end up doing framework-specific stuff for several different frameworks, it sounds like. Yeah. We use the core HTTP server to denote when a transaction starts. And this is just like a piece of web work. And a transaction is really just like a request and response cycle in this world. And then we need to name that transaction. And in Rails, you would have used the controller name. And then like that's the same with Django. In, in Java, you probably have a controller name as well. There's like almost everyone else has controller names. We pass anonymous functions to getters and assign them to a URL. That's like the common case. And so we have to instrument the framework in order to get the name of the route that's being used. And so however you bind to that route is what we use because those are unique to the route, but not unique per request. So like if you have like an ID parameter on your URL, we use like log slash colon ID, not log slash, you know, 37 for your transaction name. This is a, it kind of groups them all up by the, the controller or action, whatever you want to call that view so that we can get good data for that per those things, because those are usually where the, the variation between requests show up. And then does it do database monitoring stuff as well? Mm-hmm. So yeah. how do you do that? Is it the same thing? You just hope yeah. they're using one of these supported database libraries? Yeah, so we support almost every data store that people use in Node. The only, we're the only missing a couple of them, like... Um, there's a few folks who are, who are deploying on Azure and they use MS SQL and we don't support that and we don't support RabbitMQ. But like every, like the most common case in our world is folks who are using Mongo with Express. And we support Mongo across all the versions of the Mongo driver, starting with 0.9. And then we support Postgres and MySQL and Redis. And those are all really common. We've seen a little bit of uptake in uh, more enterprise databases like Cassandra. And this is like really showing that Node is being adopted in the enterprise and is becoming something that people are starting to trust on their more critical infrastructure. And then we've also gotten a number of requests for things like Oracle support. And this is showing up that a lot of these uh, longtime Java shops are starting to pick up Node and using it with their Oracle backend that they've been using for probably 20 years at this point. So it's, it's cool because I can watch the ecosystem evolve and Node become more popular in a bunch of different areas where like when I started a year, over a year ago, like Node in the enterprise was like Walmart and PayPal experimenting with it. And that was it. Maybe a little bit of Yahoo switching out some of their widgets. So now it's so many other big enterprises. That's really interesting. It, it seems like it's kind of a bit of a, Who's that guy that always had to push the boulder back up the hill? Sisyphus? Uh, Sisyphus. Yeah, it seems yeah. kind of like a Sisyphean effort to support. I mean, there are new data stores all the time, mm-hmm. and, and there are new libraries for them all the time. How do you decide which ones to support? Is it just whoever bugs you the most on GitHub or something? Yeah, it's, it's louder screamers. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> That is a good way to get louder screamers. <laughs> it is. It's really good. 
Now, we, we internally use some tracking tools for our incoming requests, and we assign those things to accounts, and we know, you know, approximately what an account is worth. And we, and we use, like, that sort of metric along with number of requests because we, we may get a lot of requests from lower, like, small businesses that, that aren't going to add up to even one big, large customer. But having a large number of those is good for us as well because we get more word of mouth. So it's a combination of, you know, whether it's valuable to the business as a big money thing or valuable to the business for reputation. And also, you know, just knowing the node community. Like, Mongo is extremely important even if no enterprise customer is using it at all. Right. It's just that is what the node community uses on average. And we should be supporting the node community on average. The other thing I would say that feeds into it, at least, uh, or did when I worked on the Ruby agent is um, we're in a unique position of having information about like what gems or uh, NPM modules, like large numbers of people have in their applications. And so we can do some kind of analysis and see like how popular at least among our customers, are particular modules. Mm -hmm. And so that can help feed into it as well. Although just because something's popular doesn't necessarily mean that people care about instrumenting it. So you have to be a little careful there. Yeah, but that's, that's how we ended up instrumenting Postgres, actually, is we didn't have a ton of requests for it. And we would get occasional requests from our support saying that there were some, that like someone's uh, transaction was going through Postgres and some data wasn't being captured with that they expected. But um, it was more that we just had a lot of users with Postgres in their stack and they hadn't actually asked us for support, but we added it and then a whole lot of people were very happy. So yeah, the data analysis on our users is really useful for us moving forward. That's really interesting. So you have a whole stack of stuff just by virtue of what you collect to parse through and figure out what to build next. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. We collect every module that you have installed. This is partially or mostly for support purposes because knowing exactly what version people are on, we can uh, deduce whether a problem is in one part of the code or another sometimes, in a lot of cases, honestly. But a side effect is we have that data that we can analyze to help our customers more. It's also presented in the UI, which can which is actually surprisingly useful. Like, it seems like a very basic thing of like, oh, what versions of all these modules am I using? But there's an unbelievable number of problems that arise because you thought you were on version X, but you're actually on version Y in production. And so it's nice to be able to, to see that presented in the UI as well. Or one server out of your 35 server yeah. cluster didn't get its, didn't update its packages for whatever reason. And it's the one crashing all the time, but it's hard to detect that kind of thing where in the environment tab, you can see that you have some version numbers that you don't expect in there. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking about Node and backend, and database and server, HTTP request monitoring. I would love to talk about your browser monitoring. So I've been, a, I've been using New Relic for server-side monitoring for about three years on my app at work. It's a Python Django app and just freaking love it. But several years ago, we turned off the browser monitoring because we moved to Angular, which made us pretty much a single-page app. And at the time, New Relic was only doing uh, monitoring of page load. Uh, and then so we got really weird data out of New Relic at the time because we didn't really have a, any more than one page load. You know, every user would come in, they get a single page load, and then they would navigate using client-side routing. Uh, and that's still the case for our app today. What does New Relic give you for that kind of single page application? That's actually the biggest thing that I'm going to be focusing on in the next, you know, several months. Uh, we literally had a conversation about this this morning or yesterday because yeah. you're working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So just for context here, I'm relatively new to the browser monitoring product. I started, I think, three weeks ago. So I don't have all the answers for you. But yeah, 
I think the situation probably since you turned off the browser monitoring stuff has improved in terms of what we offer. So the two biggest that you would get are we can track every Ajax request if you're on the pro if you're on browser pro. So that can be helpful. It's sometimes hard to form a coherent narrative about what is happening, like which Ajax requests are being triggered from which page loads. And you don't have anything really to right now to tie together all of the Ajax requests for a given client-side navigation event. So that's kind of the problem that we're, we're hoping to solve. But at least you can see like all the Ajax requests that are happening and group them essentially based on the URL and get aggregate statistics about them. Um, and then the other thing that we offer is the session trace feature that I mentioned. So this is not aggregate data, right? So you're, you're talking about one particular browser's interaction with a page over time. But those session traces can span multiple client-side navigation events. And so you can see like a really detailed view of all the resource loads that happen when a client-side navigation event is triggered. And you can also annotate those traces with custom information. So if, as an example, if you wanted to be able to see in session traces every time that a client-side navigation happened, um, there's an API that you could call in JavaScript that would say like, hey, record an event starting at this time and ending at this time. And that'll show up on your session trace so that you can be able to map that back and see like, oh, okay, client-side navigation was initiated here and then all these resource loads happened and they took this long. So that's kind of what we offer today. As far as where we're going for the future, this is definitely like our highest priority for the browser product right now is better support for single page apps. It turns out there's a really, it's a really difficult <laughs> question to answer. Like when is a page load done, especially if that page load is a client yeah. uh, transition. I'm curious oh, man. whether you have thoughts about what, <laughs> what you would like to see as the criteria yeah, my, there. I have but, a really good thought on that. It just needs to be right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's kind of what if, everyone wants. If someone could <laughs> find right, that would be really helpful. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, then you, you should, that, that should be easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've left it as an exercise for you so yeah we'll leave it at, yeah we wouldn't want to deprive you of the privilege of uh working through that problem but, yeah. uh, see and I, and I know exactly what you're talking about because we have an angular app and so the page route loads really pretty quick but then ajax events start happening and data comes in and then we kill the digest you know and spend all this time loading tables and stuff so the page really isn't ready for the user and that as near as I can tell, there's no cross-application. Even within a single framework, there's no way to really know when a page route, a page is fully loaded in a single-page app. But one of the things I would love to see, and see, having used New Relic on the server side for so long, we are addicted to the New Relic graphs. I mean, every time we do a deploy, we watch New Relic for a while afterward, and we see, you know, did our, did our response times go up, go down, what happened? And with Angular, what I would love to see is, did our digest times go up or down? Just if, if nothing else, I mean, that'd be so cool to have New Relic chart that and have it charted like per browser and per URL. It'd be really slick. Sure, yeah. So in the browser agent thus far, we've avoided having any framework-specific instrumentation. So we've avoided the Sisyphean task that we were talking about earlier. But there may come a time when we need to cross that bridge and start doing framework-specific stuff to provide features like that that you're talking about. I hope that time comes soon because we're just going to build it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing I would say is for the long term, the, the approach that we want to take to this kind of stuff is we want to build great APIs first. And then the framework specific instrumentation, once those great APIs are in place, should be really easy, right? It's just a matter of like hooking into the, the right spots within the framework. I think this is a mistake that we've made yeah. in the past as a company is like 
we've focused too much on instrumenting individual frameworks and prioritize just like getting that out the door, which that's important, but it's, you know, frameworks change over time. And so what's ultimately important is having a really solid platform that you can build upon that enables you to pick up the next great framework that comes along and just have it be able to build support for it in a very short amount of time. And exposing those APIs to our users as well is uh, a big thing. Almost all of our platform or our language agents um, started out with auto instrumentation. And honestly, as, as a company, it probably made a lot more sense back then because uh, we really needed to be turnkey to make a, a name for ourselves. But now we've made a name for ourselves and we can get people to use our products. It's just a matter of like making them super solid. And so... Yeah, a, a lot of us on the on the language agent teams are reevaluating our custom instrumentation APIs to try and come up with better user-facing ones that we can then use to build our own instrumentation on top of to give better examples. And we can have a, a better conversation with our users because they can do stuff themselves if we don't support a framework, as well as support new frameworks quickly. So I got two things. I can confirm that it is a trust buster, one who, who breaks up trusts. While you're talking about ways to find out if a page load is done, I don't know if this is helpful at all, but um, there's something called Zombie.js. It uses JS DOM, so it kind of emulates the browser. But I think they have really good support for when stuff is done because they mock their own event loop. So they just check if the event loop is empty. And if it's not empty, then there's more stuff that's going to happen. It isn't loaded yet. I have no idea if that's even possible at all in a real browser, but you wouldn't be able to get access to the event loop in the real browser, but you can simulate access to the event loop by setting short timers to see if they if they execute really quickly or not. But that doesn't let you know that there is any uh, work dispatched. We, that just lets you know if there's any work queued to be done. I don't know that, like, I, I know for a fact that V8 doesn't expose any of these things externally. It may expose it through their debugger API or their Chrome debugger API, but I know it doesn't expose it to JS just by itself because otherwise I'd be using stuff like that in the Node agent as well. Yeah, all you need to do is get all of your customers' customers to install <laughs> this custom build of Chrome. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. That easy, seems easy. That seems fine. I mean, so one of the approaches that we're experimenting with right now is trying to essentially maintain a tree of causality that crosses async boundaries within the browser agent because we already instrument all XHRs and all timers and things like that. We're sort of close to being able to do this already. Um, well, I guess you, on the browser, you don't have any of the native module stuff that we have right. to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's um, nice. <laughs> so if we, if we were able to have that like tree of causality, then we could do kind of interesting things like say, okay, when we see, for example, a push state happen to do a client-side route change, Let's trace back up to the user event that initiated that, say the click or the key press handler. And then let's wait until all of the subtrees under there are resolved in some way, or maybe not all of the subtrees, but all of the AJAX requests that are, let's say, that are spawned as a result of that user event. Uh, wait until they're all resolved and then call that the end of the page load. There's some problems with that approach and there's a lot of tricky things to work through, but that's one of the things that we're experimenting with right now. Yeah, the growing use of uh, server-sent events and, and web sockets and other things like that make the tree of causality a little bit harder to deal with. 
um, especially in the node world because everyone's starting to use those kind of things now, hmm. which is rad. It's great. Like server side events are like one of my favorite things to work with when I'm working on front end stuff. Normally avoid it like the plague, but if I can just like create a page that I can upload, update on a regular basis with server side events, it makes me really happy. So. This kind of, when you talk about the tree of causality, it reminds me of Todd Gardner's project or company called TrackJS. You guys familiar with that? I'm not, no. No. They do, they do a lot of that instrumentation you're describing where they track every XHR and every timer. And, um, they do it for the purpose of error tracking. So if an error happens, they try to root cause the error and track every event that could have been related to that error so that it all gets bundled up into one unit. So pretty similar. But, you know, you guys are looking at it probably from a... I know you're probably interested in error tracking, but that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we were able to do this, then we would definitely want to apply it to error tracking as well, because it is really useful to be able to see, like, right now we can say, well, an error happened, and here's the backtrace that's provided by the browser for it. But if that backtrace doesn't cross an async boundary, then it's oftentimes not particularly helpful for diagnosis. But yeah. And tracking... Things across asynchronous boundaries are like one, it's, it's like the thing that the node agent does. A lot of the other um, agents in node land rely on native modules and hook into the JS engine to try and get some of this data where we ha- we're pure JavaScript. And so we have to wrap up every asynchronous boundary and then use some interesting like shoving variables into closures to store state and then restore it when the callback gets called. And I know that the browser is doing a little bit of similar stuff, but they're using, um, event emitters to do the same thing to restore state and everything. And so it's a lot of that wrapping up all the asynchronous boundaries so we can find cause. Kind of reminds me of that Google Dapper thing, but on the client side, like where they build in tracking stuff to their RPC libraries and into all their servers. So you can tell if you make one call, it caused these three other calls to hit these other services oh, and kind the of them all back together. Yeah. 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 We have stuff like that called uh, cross-application tracing. And so all of our platform and browser agents support it. As far as I know, I'm pretty sure all of them do. Anyway, so, yeah, that, that and so it, it can, it'll inject extra stuff into your headers for your your external bound ex, uh, requests, as well as like, not for Node, because we there are no really standard queuing libraries, but for a bunch of our other ones, like as a Python engineer, you're probably familiar with the, or a Python person, at least, you're probably familiar with Celery, and Celery is something we have CatMQ for, which lets us pass messages through the message queue protocol and everything and actually tie together every service that you have. And we've been building up some really cool visualizations around that. Yeah, so you can see, like, well, this web request spawned this uh, message on in Celery, and yeah. then that spawned three other web requests to some mm-hmm. backend services and to yeah. that whole tree of things. This is important a lot for our bigger node customers because they're building out these like front ends and where they're using the browser agent and then they want to, they're, they're doing a single page web app. So they need to track a request from the browser to node, which is probably going to call out to a Java service because it's going to multiplex out the, the call out so that you don't have to do seven calls, which are really expensive over a user's network. And then you do all that stuff, you get it all back, you collate the data. And so you, you see those. And then from the Java stuff, you see that you hit the date, a bunch of different databases. And then this creates a whole web that you can actually analyze. And we're, we're building that stuff out to be uh, really helpful to our ops engineers that use our products. This way you can see broken things that are getting slowed down at certain areas and everything. So you can more quickly identify what the problem is when requests are getting slower, especially across a bigger microservice distributed architecture. I have a total change of subject question. 
so you have this npm module that's up on github right like how do you charge money for that is it all just in the servers could someone use your code to do something useful for themselves without implementing your backend there are really interesting things in our license that say that you can't use the node agent to basically power another apm product our code is up on github but it is not osi it's not open source as far as the definition but uh, most people would use. But the source is out there that people can see, and you can just install this and run it, but unless you have a license key, it's not going to work. And even if you do have a license key, then you're either on a free level or you're going to be, or you're paying us to get the data. You can't actually use this to push into your own service. Sure. I mean, basically what we charge for is the service of storing and presenting your data rather than the agent itself. Sure. So what's the role of having it on GitHub then if technically you can't use it unless you're you're paying New Relic? Is it just to build trust? Like, hey, look, see, we're not doing anything weird. Trust is a big component of it. One of the original developers of the Node agent, Forrest Norville, um, who's now an NPM dev and a friend of mine, he's the person who's doing a lot of the work on the NPM CLI. He pushed for it to be open source, and it falls in the same vein as the Ruby agent was uh, open source as well. And by open, replace open source with sources viewable on GitHub. Because, source available. Yeah, it's source available. And a lot of it is because Node users and Ruby users are very, very used to being able to dive into the source of their gems or packages that they're using and see what's going on if something goes bad or just read it to trust it or a bunch of other reasons. Like there's a bunch of stuff in the Node agent that isn't, super specific to tracing in Node, and we'll, we'll hopefully be breaking more of those things out into their own modules, and then those will be truly open source. But uh, even still, if you're not using this to push to an APM setup, you can use our code in various ways. Just make, you can't use it to push to a, uh, like our competitor or to build a competitor. So I want to say I think that that is really cool, because I totally recognize that not everything needs to be Apache license open source. You know, like there's work that you've done that you're proud of that you want to reap the benefits of. And it's really cool to take that compromise stance of, hey, we want to have trust. We want you to be able to tinker. We want you to be able to find bugs and fix them and help us out. And we want that respect of this is a product that has a lot of our intellectual property in it. So that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm an ex-Mozilla dev. I'm very used to like the super hyper open source world of Mozilla, where literally almost nothing is closed source. Like the stuff that I had access to that was closed source were interview questions and ops stuff, and that was it. And ops stuff was actually mostly just the passwords and or other things like that, keys that had to be distributed. The rest of it, like a lot of our op puppet scripts and other things like that, or Chef, I forget what we use there, were all open source as well. Like yeah, so I mean, I'm coming from a world of very, very open source. So this kind of open source stuff, you know, it itches me in the wrong way a little bit. But at the same time, it's much better than hyper closed source, right? Like being able to at least share my source with others and I'm able to actually spin up open source projects and get them approved. Like that's a thing we can do on our team, which is, or at our company, which is really nice. We have a strong relationship with open source as well as like contributing back. I contribute to the Node project. I, I help out by running tests, and I, uh, I've actually written a, a number of unit tests for the Node project itself and contributed to other libraries that we instrument. Because, you know, as instrumentation engineers, we find bugs in people's code, and we have to be almost as knowledgeable about their code as they are. With what you said, you know, it's, it kind of irks you a little bit 
I'm just curious. I mean, you recognize the value in getting paid, right? Yes. So this is more of a philosophical can of worms to open, but like it's a very what, philosophical can of worms. What would you see? Like, what would be the ideal solution? Like, let's say that is it possible to have a world where you open source all of your tools and you still have a business model? There are people who do it. It is hard, and it is it requires turning a lot of things on their head. New Relic is really good at what it does in its current state of the world because we host a good number of servers and we keep them all up. And this is like what we do. It's the platform as a service part that is really important to our users. The code becomes less important in that case. But at the same time, like I, I understand that it can be hard to monetize stuff when you're open sourcing too much of your your gear. I don't have a solution to it. I am just, you know, an open source hippie who would rather have everything open source if I could. I, I recognize that monetizing that can be difficult. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, an open source hippie a little bit too, but I also sometimes would like to make more money off of some of the work I've done that, you know. So I, I see it. I like the way that New Relic is doing it because it kind of validates an idea that I think is still a good, wholesome idea too. Yeah. The other thing, this is a more pragmatic thing, especially with the Ruby and Python and Node agents, like because code in those languages is distributed primarily as source code, even if we wanted to go to great lengths to make sure that people couldn't read our source code, like there's not really much we could do. I mean, we could re-implement a bunch of stuff in native code, but that's expensive and has a lot of drawbacks in its own. And so on some level, it's like, yeah, we could go through effort to hide this, but it's almost even easier to put it up on GitHub because then the thing that I really like about it is that like, if you're having a conversation with a customer about a problem that they're having, it's like now you have a shared space where you can reference particular chunks of code and you can point them at like, oh, look, we fixed the, the issue that you were having. Some customers, you tell them like, we fixed the issue you were having and they're like, great, I'll go upgrade. Other customers like really, really want to see like, show me the code, show me the line where you fixed it so that I can be sure that um, it's fixed before I deploy it. And now we can easily do that. We can send them a link to our, you know, the specific line in our code where we made some change and they can see the Git commit where that change was introduced. So I think it's really valuable just from the point of view of like having a shared reference point that we can use when talking to customers. And to Ben, the startup Ben's point, I spent the first number of years as a software developer hacking games, like literally just decompiling stuff and watching memory. So, I mean, if you can do that to games where they're really trying to hide that kind of stuff, you can do this to folks who are actually, aren't actually trying to hide it that hard. So, like, yeah, open source or at least viewable source makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I can tell you there's been a couple times where it's been a nuisance to do what I wanted to do because it was like a Caesar cipher type crap in the code where it's like there's a secret in there and somewhere there's a function that's minified that just puts random bits in between. You know, like it's annoying, but it doesn't stop you from being able to do what you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you're doing that kind of stuff, you're actually slowing down the performance of your code. And like we're hyper sensitive to performance. I care a lot about how like V8 jits my code and how hidden classes are generated and making sure like we have a ton of like extra things on our inner our initializers to make sure that our hidden classes stays completely stable throughout the life of the application and stuff like that. Like trying to like obfuscate all that stuff and then maintain our high amount of performance could would just be a pain. It's not worth it. 
So uh, we didn't really talk too much about performance in this necessarily, but that is one of my biggest passions in JavaScript and really all the languages I've picked up over the years. I was a Python engineer for like six years before I came into JavaScript, and I, I spent most of my time optimizing people's codes and queries. So yeah, well, my... I, I think that performance would be a good thing to talk about. For most people's code, in most cases, the performance implications of like what the JIT's going to do with your code and whatnot doesn't matter. Just-in-time compiler, the like V8 goes through two different phases. It goes through you know code gen and then crankshaft. Uh, code gen makes your code as like it generates code as fast as possible, but it'll do like the stupidest crap while it's doing it just to get it to the point where your code is executable. Because you know this is. I'm working in Node, and so my I'm thinking about this stuff all as a server-side engineer, but you have to remember that V8 was completely built around browser interactions. And so people load up a page and have a couple dozen JavaScript sources, and then they have to then they then it has to compile them all and get it to execute as fast as possible. And then and then like the next phase is like your code has been executing for a little bit and crankshaft manages to start picking out the pieces of your code that are being called most often and then it tries to like compile it down to something a little like removing the checks or taking redundant checks and moving them up into a higher block or you know inline caching property lookups and stuff like that and so my first pick is uh mr aleph's blog his tagline is crazy russian compiler engineer he worked on hotspot in the jvm and then worked on uh, Crankshaft in V8, and then worked on the JIT in Dart. So, like, he's, like, the authority on that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, M-R-A-L-E dot P-H is his blog, and I recommend reading literally everything he's ever written and watching all of his talks. You'll be good friends with him after that. Good virtual I, friends. I've only talked with him via Twitter, so that'd be cool. But, yeah, and then my, my other pick is my friend Thorsten, does a lot of uh, performance analysis in V8 as well. And so uh, he, he put together a whole repo and he's looking for more contributors and, uh, and trying to find more people who are really interested in performance in Node. So his setup is uh, thlawrence.com slash v8-perf. And uh, Thorsten V8 perk, if you just search that, you'll be able to find his stuff. It's just a whole repo of all sorts of really cool stuff he's found out about, you know, V8 and Node. And he's not he's not restricting himself just to, like, Node V8, but also doing the browser stuff as well. And has uh, it goes into crazy depth at a, a couple different layers, but it's all from the practical point of view. Mr. Aleph's blog is very much about from the engine implementer's point of view, and Thorsten's stuff is more about you know, the user's point of view. And those are those are my two picks because, you know, performance in Node is really rad. I don't know how you say the first guy's name. Is it, is it really Mr. Aleph? I guess I've never yeah. said it out loud. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Aleph. That's... I feel like it's so formal. <laughs> right? Well, try and pronounce his... I can't pronounce his name. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his real name. Yeah. He has a really great series on benchmarks and how those benchmarks people put up on... What's that benchmark site? I forgot the name of it now. Uh, JSPerf. Yeah, JSPerf are just so bogus. Yep. Those are some of my favorite things. Well, and then written. Yeah. he branches off of that and goes into like the hidden class discussion and how JSPerf can either exasperate the problem or like make it so that hidden classes are working even better than they should and a bunch of other things. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun to look at, but I don't believe that micro benchmarks are a good idea. I think that they're more dangerous. 2015 news alert. Benchmarks considered harmful. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But because people start to bicker and argue about things that just don't matter, you know? Oh. Like, it doesn't matter if you plus plus before or after. In fact, you should just do plus equals one so it's more readable to newbies because that's like 90% of the JavaScript community is newbies. Yep. So just write code that newbies can read. And if you're New Relic or if you're on the Node Core team, when you're that cool, then go back and be like, oh, it turns out due to some weird thing in V8, if I do minus two and then plus three, this is faster than <laughs> adding five directly and then subtracting two from it or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah no, I totally, I totally agree. Like, micro benchmarks are really good if you're trying to do exactly what a micro benchmark does. Test what something does when it is the innermost loop of a very, very hot function, like hot as in access very often, right? If, if you have something core to your application that is going to iterate over 100,000 records from Mongo and it's going to do like three operations to it, toss that into JSPerf. That's an ideal case to use JSPerf to analyze what's going to happen. But if you're, you know, just serving up requests for your shopping cart where you're selling crud and whatnot, it's just not, it doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. Like your, your database queries are going to blow everything else out of the water. So just optimize those. And image manipulation too. That's a place in the browser where you actually yeah. do a million things. Literally a million <laughs> things. In a exactly. Yeah. And, and like if you're in the browser and you're trying to do things like you're playing with Canvas or WebGL, then use the profiler built into Chrome, right? Or Firefox. The profilers there are great. There's no reason to like go use JS Bench or JS Perf or one of the other benchmarking tools to like micro benchmark a piece of code because you can just run the code and see what the hottest thing is. And you can even access that stuff from Node by, uh, you can either use Perf in Linux land, uh, what's his face, uh, Thorsten, um, and V8 Perf actually like talks about how to use Perf which is just a Linux command line tool to generate flame graphs, and it's fantastic. As well as, you know, you can hook into using the Chrome debugging API from Node using Node Inspector, and now you can, like, actually see what's going on and be able to see what the slowest part of your code is without having to run silly micro-benchmarks. All right, and with that rant, let's move on into the other picks. Jameson, what are you picking this week? My second favorite band ever, The Deer Hunter released a track from their new upcoming album. It's called A Night on the Town, and it's amazing. It's so good. They do kind of like melodramatic prog rock light, and uh, yeah, it's really good. So check it out. React Rally. If you use React.js or are interested in using it, or React Native or GraphQL or any of the cool things associated with it, uh, I'm helping organize a conference August 24th to the 25th if you go to reactrally.com, you'll be able to buy tickets by the time this podcast comes out. Um, and we'd love to see you there. Yeah, that's that's all I got. Well, I got a couple things to pick. One is Caddy. It is a web server written in Go. And it's an HTTP2 web server. So it supports server push. Well, it doesn't support server push yet, but it will. <laughs> and it's going to support Let's Encrypt. Like, they're working on that right now. It supports the compression and the encryption, and it's just meant to be like, I don't know. I mean, imagine that you had all the... Because Node is not a good front end, right? I think we can kind of agree on that somewhat. I mean, it's just not as good at uh, serving files and at doing some of the like proxy-type tasks 
whereas a compiled language is generally going to be better at that and Go is compiled, and it's also pretty much as easy to use as JavaScript. So it's it's something that I like because I see, like, I'm going to be writing Go so that I can write plugins for this web server so that I can do stuff that doesn't work as well if I were to do it in Node, especially on a Raspberry Pi, because on a Raspberry Pi, Node runs a little bit slow. Go still runs pretty dang fast. And then also, speaking of Raspberry Pi, I'm going to kind of sort of pick Windows 10 in that I don't actually, I haven't used it and I don't really know anything about it. But if you have a Raspberry Pi, you can go on this form, and I, I think I gave the right link to it, and you can get Windows 10 for Raspberry Pi. And I was totally going to go through this installation process because I even found somebody had made a tool that turns their weird image into like a normal image that you can just DD onto a flash drive. And then I realized that if I had installed it, I wouldn't know how to get into it because I don't think Windows has SSH. So I didn't get quite that far. I had it all downloaded and figured out. And then I was like, oh, I'm not hooking this thing up to a monitor. But... Well, you can hook it up to a monitor for you know, 20 minutes and put putty SSH on there and then you can have an SSH thing. Well, I, I realized I had no idea what I would do with it. Cause like, oh. even if I did SSH into it, like I would still have to install like all the Unix tools to be able to do anything with it. And then, it, yeah, I was PowerShell. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. PowerShell. There you was play bash. Old I remember DOS games on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you use a nice cutting edge 64 bit operating system to simulate an old 8 bit CPU. Yep. <laughs> well, if you're into that sort of thing, there's also uh, Tiny, I forget what the name of the company is, but it's Tiny something. And they just came out with Tiny Screen. And so now you can create your own Apple Watch and you can run Nintendo games on it. You know, maybe even Super Nintendo games. So. Oh, and I also wanted to mention, there's a bunch of competitors to Raspberry Pi that I didn't realize were out there. There's Orange Pi and Banana Pi, and a particularly one one that looks pretty good is Odroid. There's like an Odroid yeah, U3 and an Odroid C1. So if you can't get your hands on the $35 Raspberry Pi 2, check into some of these other things. Particularly, I think it was the Odroid C1. actually has yeah. more memory and is more powerful than the Raspberry Pi 2, and it's at the same price. Now, I don't know if, you know, user community and documentation, all that's up to snuff, so it might be worth paying 20 bucks more to get your Raspberry Pi now on Amazon, but it's an well, option. In, in that vein, so the Odroid U3 is really nice as a quad-core ARM testing processor, so I, I use the one at home, I use one at home to, to test my builds on ARM to make sure that my native stuff still works there. And then also there's the uh, BeagleBone Black, which is a competitor as well, which has a ton of GPIO, and ha uh, comes by default with a uh, Node API installed on it, so you can use Node to interact with your GPIO. That's cool. Yeah. The two picks that I have are both related to Chrome. One of them, I'm hoping they haven't been mentioned before. I didn't see them on the, the picks page. So one of them is the remote debugger protocol for Chrome, which I guess is how Chrome WebDriver is implemented and tools like that. But basically, the short version is you can launch Chrome with a particular command line flag, and then open a WebSocket and talk to it over um, a WebSocket connection and send it commands that give you essentially the full power of everything you can do in Chrome DevTools, but you can easily write a program to script Chrome Dev DevTools this way, basically. So I just found out about that recently. I know it's been around for a while, but that's pretty cool. And the barrier to entry for it is pretty low because it's just like, well, you write some JSON into a 
WebSocket, and then you get back some JSON, and it's and you're good to go. And Firefox has similar uh, remote debugging protocol as well. We used it when I was working on Firefox OS to see like what's going on and everything. So like it's it's actually a kind of it's becoming more of a common pattern to do remote debugging protocols in the browsers. I'm hoping to see more of that kind of stuff out of IE and Safari in the future too. And then the other one is uh, an experimental tool in Chrome DevTools called Filmstrip, which will let you, uh, it'll basically capture screenshots of, I'm not sure if it's every time, but it'll capture screenshots as the page is going through the rendering process. So I think this is a very cool idea. It's You have to like do some weird magic to turn it on, and I posted a link that you can follow to, to read about said weird magic. But it's really helpful because it lets you see visually like, but, you know, you, you have all the stuff that DevTools provides you about what state the page is in, like what resources have loaded and such. But it's hard to tell based on that information alone, like what the user was actually seeing at that point in time. So I've been messing around with like capturing screen video as it's loading and then also exporting all the stuff from DevTools. But that's a huge pain. And this film strip thing, I think, has the potential to be a lot more useful than that because it, it just captures stills every time that there's a change to how the page looks and then you can correlate those back with like your timeline and dev tools so i'm hoping that that becomes a non-experimental feature at some point in the future because i think it would be really awesome that sounds super cool so how do people learn more how do they get in touch with you who should they follow on twitter so i guess if you want to learn more about new relic you can just go to our website newrelic.com yeah, there's a discussion forum that's at discuss.newrelic.com for just sort of like open-ended discussion questions. If you are a customer, if you're not yet a customer, doesn't matter. Anybody can post there. And then uh, as far as who to follow on Twitter, like I'm on Twitter as Ben Weint, B-E-N-W-E-I-N-T. I'm not on there a huge amount, but I do try to respond when people ask me questions. And... Um... I, I'm on Twitter a bit, but um, my account is private these days. So at Raithan, so W-R-A-I-T-H-A-N. You can also follow me on my blog as well as the New Relic blog. I haven't posted to the, the New Relic blog in a little bit. So I'm, I'm hoping to get more time to start diving into some of these topics that we uh, that we talk about here. And then, uh, yeah, my blog is at Raithan.net. So just my name over and over again. That's how you can find me everywhere on the internet. I've used the same name since I was like 13. Sweet beans. Well, it was good to have you guys on the show, and I wish you well. Sayonara. It was super fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you, guys. That was great. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.